I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Bionic. You know, I don't even want you to explain to our listeners where that came from because okay. uh, it's probably best they don't know. But uh, it's good to be with you here this week, Brother Tom. Yeah, man. And uh, Futurians, it's great to be with you all. Another another week of Future Quake. Uh, another week for them to endure. You and I rattling on. and yep. Thank goodness they're going to get a little break for a little bit here, just a minute. But um, anything on your mind, Brother? Oh, you know, I... Actually, Nothing going on with you, really. It's just same old, same old every yeah, day, right? I mean, it's everything's always a things always like a like a explosion of. If you nonsense. look up upheaval in the dictionary, you'll your pictures right there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Actually, more than anything, I wish I wish that people would pray that my hip would stop hurting. It's really, really been sore for the last couple. Your of days. hip? Yeah. I don't know what's going on. My hip and my knee. How long has this been? About a week. I had no idea. Yeah, it's really. I'm getting tired of being in pain. That's what wrestling with an angel will do for you. Yeah, apparently. Well, I definitely lost. Yeah. <laughs> I fought the angel and the angel won. Well, um, I know you've had back issues in the past. Uh-huh. Are there some options there through the same kind venues of the same that sort helped of you thing. there? You yeah, I gotta get, I gotta scrape some cash together to do it and you okay. know, go out and do it. So. Okay. But I'm just I'm you know I'm too busy fighting so many other fires. I just yeah. you know. Yeah. It's always a party over here. Well, you know, Dr. Rich, Rich, Richard Boykin, who was on our show years ago that came here for the Starseed Children Union? No. He might have some special ways he can, you know. Of course, he uses, like, the dark arts, so that probably wouldn't be the best way to get, get you know, help for your hip or anything like that. But he was the only one that came to mind. Uh, Maybe pass. We haven't too, too many medical physicians come in. Yeah. Um, it's great to be with you, bro. Word. And I know you the too. Lord's doing stuff in your life. Had some some big things going on in your life right now. Mm-hmm. And I also want to thank um, uh, a good friend, Samuel. In fact, uh, brother Samuel, yeah, man, he a relatively up. new Futurian. Yeah, we 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 plowed through some Mongolian barbecue. Dropped into church. Yeah. Uh, uh, he and his uh, lovely spouse, mm-hmm. uh, and dropped in, and we just had a great great time. You and I got to spend a little time with him. Mm-hmm. But I also want to sing his praises because. He got one of our commemorative book sets. Sweetness. Uh, that includes um, Lies the Government Told You by Judge Andrew DiPolitano and The New World Order Eugenics Wars, A Christian Perspective, written by our good friend Andrew Hoffman, a two-book mm-hmm. set with very, very unique wrapping around it, a book sleeve with the Future Quake mural on the front. Yeah. And, Who made that mural again? Huh? Who made the mural? Uh, well, actually, it was me and uh, Merv, or the artist. Of the of the of the wraparound, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh wow! Oh oh, but then like the artwork was yeah. done, but then the actual uh, the layout uh, was done with me, and then I gave it to to, to Vaughn, brother Vaughn, okay. Futurian, and uh, he got it all nice up and made professional looking, and uh, so he contributed as well. Okay, and uh, so yeah. Like everything we do here, it's a big multi-prong effort. Yeah. But uh, appreciate him getting that. I think we're down to just a few more of those. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you want, just go to the front of futurequake.com. There's still a few of them. It is a great way to break the ice with your friends about the kind of topics we talk about on Future Quake. Mm-hmm. You will actually uh, 
Uh, find somebody like Judge Napolitano or somebody they know, and you can sort of break the ice talking about what we do. And Andrew's book adds the Christian element that's essential. And people will understand 95% of what we talk about on Future Quake if they grasp those books. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I appreciate Samuel for picking up a set. And just to remind you, we've got um, a couple books that I have contributed to. Uh, one was called Pandemonium's Engine. I wrote about Nimrod in a prophetic uh, standpoint about transhumanism and also uh, how to overcome the most frightening issues you will face this century. And those you can order right at the front of futurequake.com. And just appreciate that, donations, everything that you all do to help our ministry. Um, unless you have any other kind of uh, uh, announcements, I want to go to, we have a, uh, uh, a guest dropping in for just a little bit with us. Let's drop some guests. So if you don't mind, we've got a, a new friend that's going to be coming in to chat with us a little bit about his special ministry. This is Brother Joel Velt, uh, who's talking about his ministry, 12 Baskets. And it's something that I think will stir some of our Futurians uh, about a unique way to serve and a unique way to play uh, an element in the overall team of the kingdom of God uh, to get kingdom business done. So with no further ado... Uh, here is Brother Joel Velt, and then we'll be back to uh, continue with our show here on Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Ramalama Bionic. Now oh, you got to come up with a better one than that. I know I'm catching you called wanna, on the interview this I didn't want to our newest guest. Yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah you usually Tom do too, too, too much foreshadowing of our guests this week. Yeah. Uh, we, we've got uh, a special friend that's dropping in for a little brief visit with us this week on Future Quake. We have Joel Velt who is the president uh, of the board of 12 Baskets Ministries. And we're going to talk uh, briefly about his particular ministry. It's one that I think our Futurian listeners are going to really be blessed by to find out a, a, one, a yet another unique way uh, that they can serve in the kingdom of God and a way even to support our missionaries who are out on the frontiers uh, doing the work of the kingdom. And I just want to say, Mr. Velt, it is wonderful to have you uh, joining us here on Future Quake. Well, thank you, Dr. Future. It's a pleasure to be here. And I believe you're joining us from the Buckeye State, correct? Uh, some call it that, yes. I'm uh, I, I'm not a native Ohioan. I will never be a Buckeye. I just, uh, <laughs> by the grace of God, I've been sent here as a prophet to these people or something for some years. <laughs> okay. You sound, like, you sound like Jonah talking about Nineveh or something. Uh, sometimes I feel that way. You're just sitting under your gourd, huh? Uh, yep. wh- where was home originally for you? Well, I was born in Arizona. I would have um, never guessed that. I, I, uh, I, in, in the in the interest of full disclosure to our Futurian listeners, I have known Mr. Velt for a long, actually a long period of time. I think it borders on on the order of two decades, I believe. And uh, that, yeah. I think it's somewhere in that order. And uh, that is something I never really knew about you, that you were from that neck of the woods. In fact, I'd like to go on and just uh, have you tell us just a little bit before you get into your, your ministry and how our, our listeners might be interested. to Tell us a little bit about your Christian experience and background. And uh, just from there, just get into how you uh, got led to be concerned about the welfare of our of our missionaries from there. But tell us a little bit about, about yourself. Okay. Well, the reason I was born in Arizona is that my parents were missionaries with the Navajo Gospel Mission from... 53 through 59, I think it was, anyway. Um, so they were, they were there. My father was director of maintenance and construction for that mission board. And so that's where I was born, in a little hospital up on the Navajo Reservation. That is so cool. Um, mm-hmm. 
when I was 19 months old, um, the mission agency uh, came up with some policies that my parents didn't feel they could uh, support. So rather than cause a ruckus, they resigned and moved back mm-hmm. to Michigan, where they were from. So I only got 19 months of Arizona influence there, but okay. uh, it, it stuck with me. I've, I've found uh, a couple times when traveling that anytime I'm in the desert, uh, feel the desert air, I feel like I'm at home. So you, you know, I sort months, of feel that. I feel that way too, Joel. Uh, I, in fact, I almost moved out to the Southwest, and I, I just, I think, well, you know, it's sort of a like a sort of a desolate feeling, but then yet something homey. And it's interesting because if you look in the Bible, the most profound spiritual uh, events happen to people in the desert. A lot of them did, yes. So uh, we were back in Michigan for a few months, and my parents uh, affiliated with a different mission board. Uh, back then it was called Hiawatha Land Independent Baptist Mission. Today it's known as Continental Baptist Missions. Um, and we moved over to Wisconsin, and my parents were involved in church planting in Rural Wisconsin, uh, about the east central part of the state. Hmm. So I grew up as a preacher's kid and a missionary's kid, home missions, not foreign missions, so I didn't yeah. have all the language learning and cross-cultural things. But there is some cross-culturalness about rural Wisconsin, too, that uh, sure. is a little different from Cincinnati or Dayton, for instance. Yeah, they don't make um, cookies. They don't make yeah. cookies. No, they make, them, they make bars. Everything's in a bar. Oh, okay. But they do have uh, um, frozen custard, I think. Oh, do they? That they is just the, toss it outside. That is the way to a Wisconsiners through their frozen custard, I believe. Well, mo- mostly they eat cheese on everything. Oh, okay. Which is pretty good for a Dutch boy, too. So. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so growing up as a preacher's kid in a missionary church, um, I knew that my father always thought that uh, being a pastor and or a missionary was uh, a special calling. Um, it, it's not that you're more important than other people, because whatever you do, which is what I'm hoping to get into a whole lot more later on, is whatever interests you have, whatever uh, abilities you have, you have a place in the kingdom. You also don't literally... have an excuse to not be involved. Right. You know, right. it's like Moses said, oh, I can't speak. I can't go talk to the children of Israel. I can't speak. Well, the Lord will work things out where you can yep. do whatever he wants you to do. So there's room so, for everybody, but there's also chores to be done in the kingdom. I, I, was, I was raised with a strong undertone that being a professional, if you want to call it that, being right. in a career of ministry was a special high calling and uh, had its own special blessings. And yeah. as a missionary kid, you know, country, country preacher, six kids, um, and my folks went with the mission board back in 1960. They went with that board. And back in those days, missionaries didn't worry about retirement funds and things like mm-hmm. that. God called you to preach. You, as soon as you got enough money, you think you can scrape by and you go start preaching. And my parents never did uh, get to what the mission board called full support. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I was raised in abject poverty and didn't know it because we were having a good time. <laughs> and, right. and got to college a few years later and found out, oh, man, we were really poor. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but we, ne- we never minded too much because God took care of us. Right. And so I uh, went through school there in central Wisconsin, um, started getting an interest in accounting-related things, 
and took my first accounting class in high school and just absolutely ate it up, loved it, and finished the whole year before Christmas break. <laughs> After the first week, the teacher told me not bother coming to class anymore because I was way too far ahead. Wow. And it just, you know, I, I found it and I just read the book and said, yeah, that makes sense. I never, I felt like I never learned accounting. I just read the book and said, well, I probably could have figured that out. Yeah. And so, uh, started trying to figure out, you know, what, what am I going to do with my life last couple of years of high school and really felt that the accounting was what really called me. So mm-hmm. the school that most of my family went to over, had a lot of ties to over in Grand Rapids really didn't have a business program at all. Yeah. And so we found out Was it a Christian school? Yes, it was a Christian school. Yeah, that's um, a common malady. You know, unless you're going into a pure liberal arts kind of thing. I think uh, for most of the schools, now the school you went to actually is an exception. Uh, but uh, for most of them, if you want to go into business or medicine, engineering or whatever, I sometimes wonder if they just don't mind if those people go to hell. Because they sure don't <laughs> send missionaries to those fields. And I think they're well, somewhat intimidated by offering programs in those areas. Well, it, it partly is what's the what's the mission of the school. And the school in Grand Rapids had started out as a Bible college. Yeah. And its purpose was to train pastors and missionaries and Christian workers. And then they, they were in the process at that time of trying to convert from just being a Bible college to being a Bible college and a liberal arts college. Mm-hmm. And they were still working on it. And my favorite prof is up there as a head of the business department there now, and they're, they're Slowly getting it worked in shape. Anyway, uh, found out about Cedarville and came down and checked it out. And sure enough, they had all the programs I wanted. And, and they're a school that's firmly committed to everything being rooted in God's Word. And so came down here to college and crammed four years of college and four years of experience and two years of marriage all into four years. Wow. And now, you probably spent most of your time at Young's Dairy down the street, didn't you? Uh, no, that's where the rich kids went. Oh, that's where the rich kids. Okay. Mm. Uh, for our Futurian listeners, uh, I filmed a movie uh, just down the street from where he went to school uh, at at a very very different school called Antioch College in the town of Yellow Springs, and it was a spiritual warfare movie called Lord of the Shadows, which was uh, uh, done, I believe, in 1988 when I mm-hmm. lived there in that area. So. It was right there in your neck of the woods of your school when things were even a lot different at that university. Was. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a contrast of night and day there between uh, Cedarville University now, which is firmly rooted in God's Word, and Antioch University, which was, uh, well, it basically it's called Hippie Town because yeah. it, you, you can walk into Yellow Springs, Ohio, and think you're in the '60s. Well, it's very new there, age. There are it's, a good number of hippies yeah. there yet. Yeah, extreme extreme new age environment there. Yes. Yeah. So, um, got my training at Cedarville. Uh, before I graduated, I ended up getting a job with a small CPA firm in Dayton, and uh, finished finished working my way through college, working for the CPA, CPA firm. Uh, took my CPA exam and passed it. Uh, I'm I'm the hardest working, lazy person you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> So I took one look at that exam, and I said, I'm not doing this a second time. And so I made sure I got that thing done once. Has any of your family or anybody ever made you feel guilty that you didn't go into the, quote, professional Christian service field? Um, No. Uh, Well, Um, and part of the reason why, from what I know of you, is you've pretty much dedicated your life, your resources, whatever you produced from your career, and poured it back in the kingdom business. 
Uh, and part of it, too, is the, it was pretty well drilled into us, not in a beat us over the head with it type of thing, but just in, in everyday life growing up, it was, it was drilled into us that you're God, and you do whatever God tells you to, and yeah. and he has a plan for you, you know, whether it's preaching or whether it's uh, being a church custodian or whether it's driving a bus or whether it's teaching Sunday school, you know, whatever it is. Right. So uh, most most of the family did not go into what would be, what would be considered uh, professional Christian ministry. Yeah. But, so how did how did you get involved in in this whole concern about uh, missionaries and meeting their needs and things like that? Some of it stems back to uh, my childhood when people did some special things for us as a family that made an impression on me and made a big enough impression that I, I remember a couple of times in my childhood thinking, that was really nice of them. Mm-hmm. If I don't get to be a preacher, i got to make sure I do that for my preacher and for his family. Oh. And a couple, a couple of really nice things, not really big things, but to somebody that's never you know, been in a restaurant twice in his life, being taken to a restaurant for dinner was a pretty big thing. Wow. And a couple of things like that just happened that, that made an impression on me. So uh, I, I go through my schooling. I tried to become, I wanted to be a missionary. Told, kept, kept asking the Lord, I'm here, remember, I'm here, send me, send me, send me. And the Lord just kept sh- shutting doors and telling me, no, okay. that's not what I have for you. And I had to, I had to come to the place where I was willing to pray and tell the Lord, okay, I'm willing to not be a missionary. Mm-hmm. I am willing to go into accounting if that's what you want. So he gets me a job with a little accounting firm. About a third of our work was for Christian organizations, mm-hmm. which is unheard of for a firm that size. Sure. But, you know, just, you know, if you leave the choice to God, he does give you what's best. Mm-hmm. And so I I got six years of experience there with a, a small CPA firm that got me a lot of experience in a lot of different fields and the ability to do a good deal of work for nonprofit organizations. Then I had the opportunity to go back to my alma mater as the director of the budget office. And that I thoroughly, thoroughly loved. I was mm-hmm. working for a worthwhile Christian organization using my talents and skills and training at a reasonably professional level. I, I wasn't... Yeah just keeping track of the checks as they came in or paying the bills. I was doing the higher-level accounting with, that I really enjoyed. And, and there's still no question in my mind, Cedarville is a very worthwhile mm-hmm. place to, to spend your life. And so I'd been there uh, about a year and a half, and I was driving home from somewhere one night and heard a talk program, and the guy was talking about getting your career on track. And I realized, you know, I can see myself staying in this job for 30 years so I'm 60 and retiring from it and saying I did what I wanted to do with my life. I, I fulfilled my career objectives. Now, that's, that's kind of almost unsettling to realize before you're 30 years old that you're in the yeah. job that you want for the rest of your life. Yeah. Less than six months later, I got a new boss and his second day on campus, he called me in and told me that I should think about what I want to do with the rest of my life because he was going to give me a chance to make a career change. He had someone else he wanted in my position. Wow. Which, uh, you know, less than six months after realizing, hey, I want to do this for 30 years, was a bit of a blow. Yeah. But meanwhile, meanwhile, I had found out about an organization over in Illinois that 
distributed excess inventory companies would donate to schools and other nonprofits. And I'd gotten involved in getting goods from this organization for the school to use in its uh, various departments. And it was really, you know, it was really amazed to find there was something that was almost more fun than accounting. Yeah. And I, I did this catalog of the stuff that was available and going through it, trying to make my notes, you know, check with the athletic department, see if they can use this and this, check with the alumni office if they need some of these. And, and I'd be telling my wife, hey, look at this. They've got 2,400 of these water purification kits. And you know every missionary in Africa needs one of those. Right. And just kept being over and over, there's all stuff available at kind of an institutional level that missionaries needed it, and it, it just wasn't at a reasonable way for them to get. Mm-hmm. And talking to my wife and I about how somebody ought to start a program to get the stuff and make it available for missionaries. So somebody ought to set up this, this program. Mm-hmm. After several months, we uh, realized, uh, well, maybe we're somebody. And so we committed ourselves. Since I was a CPA, I I knew how to file the paperwork to start a nonprofit organization and get it going. And we could go ahead and start it until somebody came along and had time to run it. And just see where it goes. So once we once we made that commitment and we're getting ready getting ready to start it up, then I got that bomb dropped on me about what would you like to do with the rest of your life? Yeah. Wow. And I went, Oh, now I get it. Yeah. So I've I've told people since then, you know, a lot of you spiritual people, the Holy Spirit calls you into something. But when you're a stubborn Dutchman, the Holy Spirit hits you upside the head with a two by four. And it felt like that's what happened to me. But yeah. uh, it was definitely the Lord's leading. And um, essentially, I've, I've been fired twice in my life. And both times, it was the Lord getting me into something better than I had even ever considered was a possibility at that point. Wow. That, that, this is a discussion that so relates to uh, the Futurian listeners and even here in the, in the uh, hosting booth your experience, and it's just a good encouragement to hear that you've had similar kind of experiences as well, too. So so, so now what happened with, with your ministry? Well, since I didn't have a job and I kind of had figured out what I wanted to do the rest of my life, we just went ahead and, and my wife and I both felt very strongly that this was what the Lord was leading us into, and so we went ahead and started it. And uh, well, Some people have told me I went out on faith. I not sure I had that much faith. I just, I, uh, I had seen, I had seen what having God's blessing in your life was was worth, and I wasn't willing to give that up. Yeah. And so I just, I just did what God told me, not because I had a lot of faith, but because I, I didn't want to lose the blessing. Mm-hmm. So I did it, and God took care of it. And some of those early years, especially, were pretty lean. I remember a stretch. Uh, I believe there was at least a three-year stretch that I did not eat a pizza made somewhere other than our kitchen. Very few of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, right. young kids growing up and uh, buying a pizza out was just no way going to fit in the budget at all. Yeah. But we certainly never went hungry. Right. And we... Uh, By the way, you, you, to, you raised a pretty big family, right? I mean, over time? I don't think so. Uh, my father had 12 children, actually. Okay. He had two families. His first wife passed away, so he had two families of six children. So I grew up with five sisters, so I don't think the four kids I had in a big family at all. Okay, all right. 
but uh, it's, it's, I find it very interesting that this ministry, we got kicked into this ministry just as we were getting our third child. Okay. The ministry is now winding down, in its present form at least, now that our last child is in college. Okay. And so these four kids were raised in the ministry. And, I mean, they were raised in the ministry. It was, it, it almost took over our house a couple of times. Yeah. And so they have seen, they've, they've grown up seeing what God's blessing is in daily life. Um, and that, I think, is one of the neatest blessings of the whole thing. Right. If, if I were to get to heaven tomorrow and God pulled me aside and say, hey, you know, that whole ministry thing you had, you know, I just want to let you go along with that because you wanted to. It really didn't do any good. <laughs> but I also wanted your kids to grow up that way. So that's why yeah. I let you do it. Yeah. It was worth it. Yeah. If that's what I found out something, it was, right. it was worth it just for what it did for my children. Well, I have amen. four kids now that are absolute social misfits, you know, because they think they, folks' life so really weird. Um, one time we had lost the facility we ran the ministry out of, so we had a storage trailer full of fixtures and a storage trailer full of merchandise. And they were sitting in our driveway, and it's getting to be this time of year, and we're worried about some freezable stuff in that merchandise trailer. And one day one of my sons was uh, saying, saying his prayers before he went to bed, and he told my wife, he said, and he was, I think he was about third grade at the time, maybe fifth, and he said, in all seriousness, after praying, well, you know, I think maybe God's just not going to let it freeze this winter so we don't have to worry about a place. Yeah. And he you know, he had seen God do things stranger than that, and so he wouldn't have seen that as such a miraculous event if that had happened. He just knew God was going to take care of it somehow. And, and that's a gifted life. We place. That's a gifted upbringing because some people would say oh you had tremendous hardship because you didn't have all this tremendous wealth that you could make a very cushy existence for your children they must be scarred for life you know haven't been deprived so much but they've actually yeah i can't guarantee they're not scarred (laughs) (laughs) but yet they saw they saw that god's hand providing his provision was a normal thing for people who yeah. follow him. Now, now they did live in, uh, I, I guess, normal uh, housing environment. Did, didn't you raise them up in just your normal kind of suburban home? Uh, well, we did for a few years until the Lord moved us up here. Our present home is a former high school building. Because so you, li- a lot more you, live in, you live in a high school, your family. We live in a high school. 93 rooms, depending on how you count them, somewhere between 90 and 96. Um, you live yeah, in a 96-room yeah. house. Yeah. It's the largest single-family house in the county, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and because uh, of your tremendous wealth. It's a, it's how, a many, little cottage, but we like it. Well, how many tens of millions of dollars did you have to pay for that uh, sprawling estate? Um, per square foot, it's the cheapest real estate in the state. <laughs> it was, and, it was, and it's basically a city and block. And that was possible. Yeah. And that was made possible because the friends who had originally made it a home had a vision for what it could do for our ministry. And when they when they got a chance to buy Grandpa's farm, they sold us the property for basically what they had invested in it. Yeah. yeah. And without any thought of making money because they knew that it was essential for our ministry. 
And so you have basically a, a city block in small town Ohio. Yes. For your upbringing. And so you had like a garage for, for school buses, a cafeteria. I assume you had a gymnasium. Yeah, the gymnasium. Uh, the cafeteria actually was next door in the building that the ministry's headquartered in. Okay. And it's kind of in the basement and kind of yuckyish. Yeah. So we didn't really have the large cafeteria, but yeah. but uh, we had plenty of room for everything. Uh, my my poor youngest daughter had to transition from a 25 by 27 room all to herself to a unit about that size shared with five other girls in the dorm. Oh, when she went to college. Yes. Wow. Well, now, um, t- tell me, what are the kind of things that your ministry normally picks up? I assume they find them when they're basically closeouts or consignments, something that they get rid of in bulk. That, right. And, and, ha- and how you pass it on or how you've traditionally passed it on to the to the missionaries that need stuff. Uh, the stuff we get is uh, frequently a, a change in packaging or a change in model or a change in something or other. One time we got a nice supply of uh, stationary products because the company that had the right to a famous designer's name on stationary products had a contract that went through December 31st of X year, and they could not, they were not allowed to sell anything with his name on it after that. Yeah. And so they, yeah, they have all the stuff in warehouse yet, and they contacted and said, hey, is it okay if we donate it? And said, well, sure. And so it got donated, and we got a chunk of it, and we got some really high-end stationary products. Okay. Um, the, the organization that we got a lot of the stuff from, one of the uh, examples they like to give was the time they got a couple truckloads of Raisin Bran cereal because somebody flubbed at the plant, and they put, three scoops of raisins in instead of only two. And they didn't dare let those hit the grocery shelves because anybody that bought them would never be happy with any boxes after that. Uh, so you got three scoop raisin brand box for missionaries. Yeah. Sweet. So the, the way the tax break works for the companies that donate the stuff, it really attracts the higher-end merchandise. Okay. The, the El Cheapo Plastic Junk company that has a bunch of that they need to sell the, the cheap junk, they're better off selling to a, a close-out place that yeah. pays on the dollar. The high-end stuff with a lot of markup, they're better off, if if they're making money overall, they're better off mm-hmm. donating that and getting the tax break, yeah. which equates essentially to the government buying it from them at cost, so they right. lose no money on the deal. Right, right. So we uh, we carry everything from soup to nuts. Um, we, we do not handle used clothing although my wife handles a lot of used clothing for everybody yeah. in the family. But as a ministry, we do not mm-hmm. handle used clothing. There's a lot of places to do that already, and I don't have time to duplicate somebody else's work. So yeah. no used clothing, no tobacco products, no alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. Everything else is pretty much fair game, and I think almost everything else I can think right. of we have handled at some point. Well, what um, is some of the stranger stuff that you've gotten that missionaries have found useful? Um, we got uh, one thing that we had a lot of all along generally has been uh, seasonal and gift paper good type things from uh, Carlton Cards and American Greetings. Yeah. Because they don't they don't hold anything for the next season. They right. Dump it all and make it all new again the next year. Right. So we got a couple of display units one time of some uh, far side wrapping paper and greeting yeah. cards and related items. And uh, just about every missionary that came through while we had that stuff there 
come in and see that and say, oh, I bet you have trouble getting rid of that, don't you? Because that's kind of a little bit on the wild side for conservative <laughs> missionaries. Yeah. But, you know, my brother would love this, and my cousin would love this. Ah. Uh, the stuff went like hotcakes. None of them would admit to liking it. Yeah. Oh, they all had brothers <laughs> that would love it. So, huh. so everybody thought we'd have trouble getting rid of it, right. and it went really fast. Um, one thing that we've consistently had trouble moving has been Halloween merchandise. Yeah. Because yeah. You know, as, as fundamental end of the spectrum missionaries, sure. tend to shy away from that. And yeah, I would think, yeah, in the, yeah, if it's in the dark center of Africa or South America, they'd say, oh, yeah, we know that stuff. We used to use it before we converted. Yeah. You know, so that would turn out sort of weird, I could see. So uh, sometimes we get things that were assorted and would have various holidays in it and get some Halloween stuff. Well, one yeah. time we got some displays of stuff, and fortunately the local school district school colors were black and orange. Okay. So uh, the black and orange napkins and stuff like that, we could always find a way to use that. You know, but there's there. We, it's a, I'm sorry. We got uh, included in the stuff a couple cases of Dracula blood for <laughs> Halloween makeup. So what yeah. are you gonna do with that? Well, yeah, I guess Easter well, drama or something, maybe. Well, better than that. A uh, couple guys that had a ministry with a mission board making evangelistic films oh. for their missionaries in, you know, wherever they were in the world. And almost every evangelistic film that they'd make, you know, following somebody, how they get into a pit of sin and stuff before yeah. they converted, they're all ending up either getting shot or knifed or in a car accident. Yeah. And so they went through makeup blood by the case. And so, <laughs> here's two cases of makeup blood for you. We'll relax your prayer for them. This is a proof that there is room, no matter how strange or bizarre you are, there is room in the kingdom for you to serve. Oh, yeah, you can tell me film kind of guys. Some of them get really strange and bizarre. Well, you know, Future Quake has stood as a living testimony to that. And and we actually represent a whole community of people who can relate to that. We had a guy on a few weeks ago, and actually one of his main distributors is an evangelist in Cincinnati, just south of you, that made a legendary movie 40 years ago that uh, showed a communist takeover of America where they came out and just shot up all the people in the churches and everything. And he went through a lot of that stuff. But you know that movie is still getting people saved around the world. I think they said somewhere between 1 and 10 million people have accepted Christ. So you just really never know. Uh, can you explain just real quick, though, how the, the missionaries, they just come through, it's like a, almost like a little shopping thing you've got there, yeah. and they just go through and load up and then take it back to wherever they're serving. The distribution center is like a little mini department store, and we got shopping carts that stores wanted to get rid of, and so we took them off their hands, and they, they go through and load up the shopping carts with whatever they can use. IRS requires that we keep a record of who gets what, so we have to go yeah. and list it all. And then we don't do anything with the list, but you have to list it. Right. And then they they take it home or wherever wherever home is for them. And it's like a little department store, but there's no cash register at the end. Huh. Wow. Um, to, we, used, we used to ask for a $40 membership fee per family per year, but that yeah. wasn't paying the bills anyway. So we finally, right. a couple of years ago, got smart and said, ah, forget that. Just whatever the Lord tells you to give, it's his ministry, his stuff. Yeah. That's what we'll do. Well, now, can, can you just uh, tell us really quickly any kind of notable uh, stories that really touched you about some unique needs or something came to be a special blessing okay. or it really my, was you special? My favorite one on that is the story of the time. Oh, besides having the store here, um, 
when we had the opportunity to, we would take a truckload of stuff to a mission board annual conference where there's a whole bunch of missionaries there at one time. Yeah. Take a truckload of stuff, set up a little mini store there so the missionaries could shop there. That's how most of them originally would meet us, and then they'd come here to get more stuff. But we, we were at a mission conference like that one time um, with the, one of the mission boards that we really enjoyed working with. And we we got stuff set up there, and we're putting out boxes of this and boxes of that. And one thing we'd just gotten at that time was several several cases of bulk ladies' pantyhose. We get oh. like I think there's like 144 pairs in a case. Wow. And we had a case of queen size gray and a case of medium size black, and, yeah. and so we had to go through and kept my father busy uh, as a retired preacher for a few hours yeah. a day, whatever. Uh, Football, three at a pair of time, putting them in a Ziploc bag with a label. Yeah. So we got these boxes of uh, bulk pantyhose there, and we're setting up, and one of the ladies wants to start shopping before we're completely set up, and so I go ahead, you know, she's looking through, and she's oh, these pantyhose, what's, what's, what's the limit on these? And we said, there is no limit. <laughs> We've got boxes yeah. and boxes, and take as many. There's no limit? I could take, like, 10. You take 20. And she broke just broke down in tears. She said, for the last 10 years in France, I have had to pray specifically for every pair of hose that somebody would send me. And now I can get 20 at once? Huh. And I hmm. almost didn't ask for them because I thought, you know, pantyhose, who's, you know, who's that going to bless? Right. Well, right. it blessed several people. And that's, that's, that's one of my favorite stories because it's, you know, it wasn't big. It didn't save her thousands of dollars. Yeah. But it was a real blessing and real encouragement to her. But it was a sign that God heard her prayer. God heard her prayer specifically and sent her a unique sign to show, I will provide for all of your provisions, even even these kind. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Then uh, there was a couple-year stretch when the the main thing we got seemed to be uh, software from Microsoft. They yeah. sent a sent the back, you know. They'd come out with a new version of Word or Excel or whatever, and they'd send all their old packaging of the old version. And people were telling us, "Ah, it's kind of old now. You know, you know it won't mm-hmm. be any good." Well, a lot of people, the older was better than none at all. None was what they had, so they liked it. Well, then we uh, we were at another mission board where we had the mobile store set up, and a guy came through and he said, uh, "What what software have you got?" We showed him. And he started almost getting charismatic there, which tended not to have too many charismatic missionaries. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they didn't hear about us, not because we don't like them. Right. But uh, he, he started jumping up and down and saying, this is it, this is version three, or whatever version it was. And he worked in an Arabic-speaking country, and he bought at some re- fairly high expense some software to convert Word for Windows into Arabic. Okay. But it only worked with this one version of Word. And he got back to the States, and that version of Word wasn't available anywhere anymore, except at 12 Baptist Ministries. Wow. Hmm. Well, now, how long was... A lot of of missionaries would get the software just so they could buy the, you know, send in the the title page of it so they could get the upgrade at the upgrade price instead of the full price. So lots of them uh, got it just for that. Well, how long has this ministry been in service? Uh, we were legally incorporated April 19th of 1989. Okay, so it's so been 22 years. 22 and a half years now. 
22 and a half. What, what kind of special needs do you, does your ministry have now? Um, we have two needs at this point, uh, primarily. One is we need uh, wisdom and direction to know how to reinvent ourselves. Because with the change in airline regulations, missionaries no longer can carry much stuff with them. It used to be in the good old, old days before 9-11 and all that. Um, if you're flying internationally, you get at least two 70-pound bags per passenger. And yeah. if you're buying tickets for your whole family of six, it was not unheard of at all to say, and can you give us a couple hundred extra pounds of luggage? And yeah. Sure, no problem. Well, no, no way anymore. Now you get generally one 50-pound bag, and if it's 52 pounds, you're paying a $50 fee or something like that. Yeah. You get an extra bag, it's a $100 fee. It's just it costs more than stuff is worth to take, to take stuff overseas. Now, if you've got a mission compound somewhere with a bunch of missionaries together, and you can go together and fill a 40-foot container and wait eight months for it to get there, then you can get anything there you want. Yeah. But... It's it's really difficult to ship anything and get it there, and so missionaries just aren't picking stuff up from us anymore very much. Mm. So we've got a whole lot of stuff we have to find creative ways of getting rid of and figure out what to do next that will continue to meet missionaries' needs. Okay. Our other our other formation. building next door. Hey, uh, yeah, Joe, we we had a little uh uh problem there with your connection uh if you can get a little place you feel like you get you can hear a little better we're losing you a little bit okay just let me check on one. okay okay yeah i've got four bars here though so. okay that's good okay so so what's your what's your other need pressing need you have the other formidable thing staring us in the face every day is that we have a roof on the building next door which is the ministry headquarters uh we, we live in Mills High School. The ministry headquarters is the old elementary school next door. Beautiful building, stone castle. Um, mm-hmm. But the roof is literally starting to fall in in a couple of places. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's looking to me like it's probably at least a $20,000 roof repair job. And that's about $19,500 more than what we got. So we're trying to figure out how we can keep the building from falling apart while we try to empty it out and find a buyer for it. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're we're going to say a quick quick prayer for that, but I want to ask you something uh, as we get here to the end about your lifestyle in general. Um, you have lived a lifestyle, and and I found out some more details tonight that I didn't know from all these years having known you. But you have lived extremely frugally, both as a growing up and then as you've raised your family. You you've lived um, very carefully and as a good steward with what you've had. And, and what you've had, you've put back in the ministry for people. Do you have any kind of advice for our listeners about looking back on your lifestyle? If you felt like you missed anything, or has the Lord taught you anything about the value of using assets for the kingdom as opposed to listening to what Wall Street and Madison Avenue says of what our priorities should be and the possessions we have and the status symbols of the things we have. Is, is there anything spiritual that you can share with our listeners about that, about what they could learn by living that kind of lifestyle? To quote one of my heroes, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I've, I've learned one thing for sure, and that is that God, you know, the only challenge God really gives us in the Scripture, the, the only time he really you know, gives us a dare, he says, I double-dog dare you. 
try it out, give me. Just try it. Mm-hmm. And if you start giving, I will give back and I'll open, the windows of heaven will open up and I'll pour blessings on you. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that no matter how much you try and give God, he shovels it back and God shovels way, way bigger than mm-hmm. ours. Mm-hmm. And he likes to spoil his kids, doesn't he? Yeah, he loves to spoil his kids. And sometimes if you have me on for another half hour, I can tell you the story about how God taught me about puppy dogs. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a big thing here because Pyro is one of our co-hosts here on Future Quick, so we'd like to hear about that. But I, I want to go on and um, uh, you know take you and your ministry uh, into prayer here. But I appreciate you sharing that with us. So, you know, in the, in the world's eyes, they would say that you really missed out on a lot. I mean, I see yeah, these commercials had... for for sandals and for these uh, these resorts, you know, in the Caribbean, and they show a lifestyle of what we're really supposed to be looking forward to, and why we end up working two jobs and have, you know, both parents out mm-hmm. working so we can support that lifestyle and have more kind of things. And, and so, and in the world, they life... would feel they would feel sorry for you in the world. Yeah, I feel sorry for me. I I live in the largest single family residence in the county. <laughs> My children have all gone to private college. And I haven't paid a cent for it. That's because they're smart. I got some other brains. Yeah. Um, and when my passport expired last year, I went back and went, I'd used to visit 10 different countries. Yeah. Basically going to, to encourage missionaries. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's been a rough life. I yeah. love it. You know, the one thing that, that I don't notice on when I hear these things that Madison Avenue tells us about what we're supposed to like, I don't always see a lot of happy or fulfilled people. And I don't see something called joy. I see a lot of excitement when somebody gets a new car, a new house, or some you know status symbol that's sort of short-lived. But I don't see an indwelling joy. I, I would assume that that's, that's something that you have in a high measure. That is nothing compared to the absolute joy of learning things that you thought you'd already learned. But when you see your children teaching you about faith and following God, there's, there's no new car in the world that can compare to that. Yeah. Well, let, let me uh, let me just go to the Lord uh, in prayer, and if our Futurians and Tom, you just join with me, I want to pray for you, Joel, and for your ministry here. Heavenly Father, we just pray for for Brother Joel and for his family and other helpers, Lord, other Christians uh, that are helping with Twelve Baskets Ministries. Lord, they have asked for help on direction, on how to be more effective now that the world has changed. And we have to adapt our way of uh, meeting needs, those changes. And also there's just an immediate facility need, Lord, uh, that we need you to come through again and provide. And, uh, Lord, you've been a good provider to Joel and his family and particularly to his ministry. Uh, and, And through them, they've passed it on to the missionaries out in the field doing our work, Lord. Lord, I pray that this would be another time that that you would fulfill uh, this need that's there. Uh, whether it's the proverbial check just out of the mail in the mailbox from who knows where, uh, but Lord, I particularly pray for our Futurians who are listening, who have been uh, moved by this talk tonight, uh, that support missionaries, that believe in the Great Commission, and believe in unique ways of helping that effort, and that Lord, that you would take at least some of them and move them in a special way in their heart, that they would want to be motivated to support this ministry, Lord. And support a kindred spirit in Brother Joel here um, that has poured himself out and sold out to you, Lord, like I know many of our listeners have. And so, Lord, we just pray. We thank you. We know that you will be faithful.
uh, and that things will happen as you deem them uh, to be fit. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of serving you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, as as we close here, I just want to ask you if you could tell our listeners in response to that prayer, ask them how they can uh, find out more about your ministry and support its mission. Okay. Uh, our address is 12 Baskets Ministries, 420 West Columbus Street, West Liberty, Ohio, 43357. 43357. Okay. And, and myself... My cell phone yeah. number is area 937-844-7004. Okay. If they choose to give by something like uh, PayPal or anything like that, do you have any other kind of electronic means in which they can contribute? No, we don't at this time. We are a 501c3, so any gifts are fully tax deductible. Well, that's good. That's good to know. So people can, if they itemize their taxes, they could do that. And... Uh, uh, it's twelve. It's twelve basket ministries is the title, right? At four twenty West right. uh, West. Uh, Col- say that Columbus. again. Street. Okay, Columbia. Columbus. 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 Like Columbus, Ohio. Columbus right. Street. And uh, listeners, if you all have uh, some issue, if you didn't catch that, you just go back and listen to this segment. But if not, uh, email me, and I will certainly give you that information. And you'll be blessing me as you bless Brother Joel. And, Joel, I want to thank you so much for being uh, faithful to our daddy in heaven and doing his work. And, and that uh, goes... Thank you. And the same to you, Mike. I, I appreciate uh, what you've done in your life also. Well, um, I tell you, our, our listeners, uh, I'll just tell you without giving you the details, that in, in a, in a um, regular annually way, uh, Brother Joel helps with the Future Quake Ministry. Uh, and he has helped and he has provided me guidance and uh, a way for me to keep my nose clean and to do things God's way. And I have a, a Christian advisor that I can go to to make sure things are done correctly in a way that has integrity. And given some incidents I had just recently, I'm so glad I had that uh, resource because it made a difference uh, in us being able to do the Future Quake Ministry. So. Uh, I want to thank you publicly for that, Joel, and uh, I just thank you again so much. Please come back again and join us here at Future Quake. I'll be happy to do that. All right, we're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom... <laughs> I think he's had a break. I think actually whatever hurt his hip is starting to affect his cranial cavity. You are correct, You sir. know, you see, is, is it the hip or what? You seem a little low-key. Yeah. For normal tonight. No, it's a hit. You're man. usually cuckoo for cocoa puffs. I've, I've been, you know? I've been in a lot of pain all day, to be honest. Man, I'm sorry about it, brother. Yeah. Can I can I pray for you right now? Yeah, go ahead. Can I just do it right now? Sure. Um, you may not get instant help, but when our Futurians pray with us, when they hear it, then you'll get the help. Okay, so I'm I'm ready to go to a I'm ready to go to a peg leg at this point. Are you ready to go yeah. to that? Well, yeah. let's see if we can do do something prior to the peg okay. leg. Okay, Heavenly Father, we just pray for Brother Tom, who um, ministers. Uh, Lord, to others 24-7. Lord, we ask that that you would minister to him. And uh, not only I, but he and our fellow Futurians are praying that you would take uh, the distraction of this pain, Lord, and the suffering he's going through, take it away uh, so he can not be distracted from his kingdom business that he's about. Lord, I pray that you'd help him with that. Please heal him. Make him whole, Lord. 
And uh, also do it, um, I know you love him, Lord, but just let him know that we all love him too. And that uh, uh, we would do a lot for him, Lord. And uh, I just pray this is one that we have to ask you to do for him, Lord, to heal him. So please do that. And again, we thank you. We know that you love us, uh, Lord, that there's times when we have to suffer for your namesake and we can learn through it. But we also know that you like to heal too. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would do your healing work with him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, this is becoming like the praying show this week, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Could go. Could, I hope people aren't thinking we're wasting our time praying so much. No. You know. know. Maybe wasting our time in other ways. But. <laughs> well, speaking of wasting time, do you have a story for us this oh, week in Future Quake? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess. Here's a nice airy one. Do you have, like, first runner-up in case you cannot fulfill your duties at co-host? Like, is Merv or Pyro step in in case you cannot do your yeah. stories tonight? Okay. Yeah, it's like, you know, on death row when one of the one of the guys freaks out, you know. I was talking about, like, Miss America pageant. I wasn't didn't really meaning death row. Oh, well, I don't, wear, I don't wear a tiara or anything, so that okay. may not be a good analogy. Okay, well, then lay a story on us. How does that have to do with a tiara? It doesn't. Sorry, I sorry I caused that distraction. Just I can't I can't work like this. Recite some <laughs> recite some wisdom for us if you can find it somewhere none, in there. But I do have a story here okay. from the New York Daily News. We fabricated drug charges against innocent people to meet arrest quotas. Former detective testifies. He testified Woo-hoo. under oath. In he testifies court. under oath that they fabricated drug charge. I guess he would never admit that if he didn't have to under oath. In other words, they'd never breathe the word of this unless he, a penalty of perjury. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, a former NYPD narcotics detective snared in a corruption scandal testified it was common practice to, to fabricate drug charges against innocent people to meet arrest quotas. Um the bombshell testimony from Stephen, Stephen, Stephen Anderson is the first public account of the twisted culture behind the false arrest in the Brooklyn South and Queens narc squads, which led to the arrests of eight cops and a massive shakeup. Anderson, testifying under a cooperation agreement with prosecutors, was busted for planting cocaine, a practice known as flaking or flacking, on four men in, Queen, in a Queens bar in 2008 to help out fellow cop Henry Tavares, whose buy and bust activity had been low. Tavares was was worried about getting sent back to patrol, and you know the supervisors getting on his case. He recounted at the corruption trial of Brooklyn South narcotics detective Jason Arbini. Arbini. I had decided to give him the drugs to help him out so that he could say he had a buy. Anderson testified last week in Brooklyn Supreme Court. He made clear he wasn't about to pass off the two legit arrests he made in the bar to Tavares. As a detective, you still have a number to reach while you're in the narcotics division, he said. NYPD officials did not respond to a request for comment. Anderson worked in the in the Queens and Brooklyn South narcotics squads and was called to the stand at Arbany's bench trial to show the illegal conduct wasn't limited to a single squad. Did you observe with some frequency this dot 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 practice which is making someone who was seemingly not guilty of a crime and laying the drugs on them? Justice uh, Gustin Rybach answered, asked Anderson. Yes, multiple times, he, he replied. The judge pressed Anderson on whether he gave a thought to the damage he was inflicting on the innocent. 
It was something I was seeing a lot of, whether it was from the supervisors or undercovers and even investigators. It's almost like you have no emotion with it, that they attach the bodies to it. They're going to be out of jail tomorrow anyway. Nothing is going to happen to them anyway. The city paid $300,000 to settle a false arrest suit by Joe Jose Colon and his brother Maximo, who were falsely arrested by Anderson and Tavares. A surveillance tape inside the bar showed that they had been framed. A federal judge wow. presiding over the suit said the NYPD is plagued by widespread, widespread falsification by arresting officers. Um, there you have it. And there was planting I, drugs. I, 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 there was there was some bigger bombshells. I thumbed through the testimony yeah. of that thing. I, I can't. I don't know what yeah. I did with. It. I can't find it. But planting drugs on folks. America, America. Let, let me ask you this: Do you think? That kind of injustice will be judged by God, just like gay marriage. No, he'll he'll look the other way at that one, I'm sure. Of course. In the Old Testament, say a whole lot that this is the kind of stuff a, exactly that he will yeah, judge a nation for. It's an abomination. How much do you hear other evangelicals getting out there and making a big scene or having big organizations come up because of well, this get, injustice of the... Well, getting on this doesn't, doesn't line their coffers, so not very many. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a I mean, the Catholic Church doesn't need money because yeah. they're too busy selling pornography, which is my next story. Which is the next yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. But the like, you know, a poor Puerto Rican kid or black kid or, or whoever it might be, mm-hmm. who who gets framed for this kind of stuff, you you don't see the big parachurch organizations going out and saying, we got to form big groups and go protest and and have some conferences about police injustice. No. But the new, but the Old Testament says it's a big deal to God, right? Mm, yes. So it sounds like we got a problem in the church as much as the country. No, I'm sure it's no problem. We just need to hear. We need to have another, a more motivational uh, but preaching. Crooked cops or crooked judges, whatever. That that is absolutely that that is so much more of a peril than Al Qaeda or a foreign army. Is the fact that you cannot get justice if you don't pay off somebody or have some other reason? I mean, would would you agree with me, Tom, that that some kind of like missiles that these other countries have is small potatoes compared to corrupt leaders like that that can send any one of us to prison no. on a whim if they choose? No, they're all good, upstanding folks. Even these two gentlemen. Who, who's who are you, and what have you done with Tom Bionic? I think that of hip course, is gone septic. Of course, it's just oh, you know, you see, you see evil for so long. It's just like oh yeah, more evil. Look at that. It's not the first time we found this on Future Quake over the yeah, last seven years. It's just a big, years. it's a big parade yeah. of ridiculousness, you know. Well, I wish it was just ridiculous. Here we go, everybody. There are innocent people in jail. Yeah, man. And the church is not there to dress them because they think it's them liberals. Some liberals that care about injustice. Yeah. Well, not that Ann Coulter speaks for you know Christianity yeah. or anything, but it's interesting. And a side note that she accused anybody who was liberal or left leaning. Yeah. Uh, they she said they they were serial misogynists and sadists in a column uh, a couple of days ago. All right. And that there was they were just all bad. Yeah. I mean, for some of our newer listeners, I mean, I come from a strong conservative background. And had voted conservative many years. So, you know, it's not that. It's just that 
I've become more attuned from doing this show about how prevalent injustice is in our country and how tolerant we are of it because we don't see it that affects us. And so we'll go event an enemy who looks different than us, has a different religious belief, some other different ethnicity, and we'll we'll get all scared about that and spend all of our time doing that when the biggest danger to us is right under our nose. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't hit us yet, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm preaching to the choir here. Mm-hmm. Hey, would you like me to cleanse our palate a little bit mm-hmm. with a story? Mm-hmm. I'd like to do it with a musical interlude, but yeah, another story yeah. might okay, not be that's, bad. That's it. This is a classic kind of fu- old-time future quake weirdness story, okay? Sweet. I always feel like I've been depriving our listeners the last few years on w- weirdness quotient, and so I'm going to try to get back to that just to... Uh, has all sorts of richness of uh, potential here. This is from uh, the Haaretz newspaper in Israel, a prominent uh, newspaper. It says, Morbid Theory and the Mystery of Israel's Answer to Stonehenge. Uh, oh, yeah. Archaeologist Rami Arav links the structure of the concentric stone circles in the Golan Heights, known as Rujum al-Huri in Arabic and Gilgal Raphim in Hebrew, to the ancient method of disposing of the dead. Uh, it says, a newly proposed solution to an ancient enigma is reviving debate about the nature of a mysterious prehistoric site that some call the Holy Land's answer to Stonehenge. Now, this is this is a place that's right up on top of the Golan Heights, which is right where I was, where I was working two years ago. Two mm-hmm. years ago, I was working on the very northern tip of Israel with a defense company there, and... Uh, I, I kept wanting to go up there, and you know those people were raised Israeli, including they didn't the know nothing. They didn't know anything about Gilgal Rephaim. We don't know nothing. Had nothing. They didn't know who the Rephaim were. Missile system. And they were right there where all the giants were, and they didn't even know who they were. Um, it says some scholars believe the structure of concentric stone circles, known as Rujim Malhiri, was an astrological temple or observatory. Others a burial complex. The new theory proposed by archaeologist Rami Arav of the University of Nebraska links the structure to an ancient method of disposing of the dead. Hmm. The site's name means stone heap of the wild cats in Arabic. Mm -hmm. In Hebrew, it is known as Gilgal Rephaim, or the wheel of ghosts. Hmm. Sort of an interesting That's in Hebrew. Uh, It was first noticed by scholars in 1968. Interesting. First time they noticed it. A year after Israel captured the Golan Heights from Syria. And despite its intriguing nature, it has attracted few visitors. Unmarked, it lies an hour's hike from the nearest road, near old minefields, an abandoned military bunker, and a few grazing cattle. Rajum al-Hiri's unremarkable appearance from the ground belies its striking form when seen from the air. It consists of four circles the outermost more than 500 feet across, made up of 42,000 tons of basalt stone. Uh, the remains of massive walls that experts believe once rose as high as 30 feet. So picture wow. a, a structure, 30-foot hall walls, four rings, the outer ring over 500 feet across. We're talking almost two football fields in diameter, or radius, diameter. It's big. Pretty mysterious, and they didn't even know about it until 1968, okay? Um, it says uh, it's, it is an enormous feat of construction carried out 6,000 years ago by a society about which little is known. So all of the ancient inhabitants of Canaan 
saw this as existing when they got there, basically. It seems likely that Rajum al-Hiri served residents of excavated villages nearby that were part of the same agrarian civilization that existed in the Holy Land in the Chalcolithic uh, period between 4500 and 3500 B.C. This predates the arrival of the Israelites as described in the Bible by as much as three millennia. Mm-hmm. But nothing is known about why they went to such great lengths to construct something that was not a village or fortress, whose location was not strategic, and whose practical purpose is entirely unclear. Most scholars have identified Regime al-Hiri as some kind of ritual center, with some believing it's connected to astronomical calculations. Archaeologist uh, Jonathan Mizrahi, one of the first to excavate there, found that to someone standing in the very center of the circles on the morning of the summer solstice in 3000 B.C., the first gleam of sunrise would appear at the center of the northeast entryway in the outer wall. So, maybe they got their idea from the Georgia Gadstones. Maybe they were they That's were building probably, it probably off of the Gadstones. Okay, just like England Stonehenge, thought to date around 3000 B.C. at the earliest, Regime Alhiri has also provided fodder for ideas of a less scientific sort. One posits the site is the tomb of the biblical giant known as Og, king of the Bashan. Indeed, there is indeed a tomb in the center of the site, but scholars tend to agree it was added a millennia or two after the circles were erected. Well, that would still be appropriate for Og, because they were fighting Og, weren't they, Joshua? The feeling? Yep. The guy with the big bed that was like 13 feet long? Mm-hmm. Um, a self-proclaimed expert in supernatural energy fields visited the site in 2007 and claimed it had high energy, high levels of energy and vibration, which he suggested was the reason the ancients chose the location. I wonder what kind of instrument he used for that. Hmm. What he used to measure that. It was also used for the by the dogmas, wasn't it? To do. They were. It's a specific sect of Zoroastrians who would. Pick, well, uh, wait, wait, wait. Don't get to that. I'm getting to the punchline here. Okay. Do you read this story? No, I just know a lot about ancient oh. Israelite religion. Okay. Well, smarty, well. smarty pants. A psychic, I meant that in a nice way. Yeah. A psychic consulted afterward by the same expert declared that Regime Al-Huri had been a healing center built with knowledge that came from ancient Babel and was managed by a priestess named Nogia Nogia. So, All right. You know her. The theory proposed by Arav, who has led the excavation of another ancient site nearby since the late 1980s, is based on a broader look at the local Chalcolithic civilization and on similarities he noticed with more distant cultures. Rav published the idea in the current issue of the Biblical Archaeological Review, a U.S. periodical. He says, I tried to look at the whole culture that time, said Arav. The Chalcolithic people of the Holy Land buried their dead in ossuaries, small boxes used to house bones. Use of ossuaries requires that the flesh first be removed, which can be achieved by burying bodies for an initial period in temporary tombs until the only, bone, only the bones remain. But archaeologists have not found evidence of such preliminary graves from Chalcolithic times, Rob said, suggesting a different method for disposing of the flesh. Rob found a clue in a trove of Chalcolithic artifacts discovered to the south near the Dead Sea, a small copper cylinder with a square opening like a miniature gate, and crucially, figures of birds perched on the edge. He also noticed a similarity to, to round, 
high-walled structures used by Zoroastrians in Iran and India, known mm-hmm. as dakmas or Towers of Silence. He must have been reading your work, evidently. No. These, never mind. These are buildings used for a process known as excarnation or sky burial, the removal of flesh from corpses by vultures and other birds. The wing scavengers perch on the high circular walls, swoop in when the pallbearers depart, and can pick a skeleton clean in a matter of hours. Regime Alhiri, Arab believes, was an excarnation facility. So, if you understand, what that means is they would carry it through these rings, if he's right, to the center, put the put the corpse there. These birds are just waiting on top of the walls until they leave. They go down there, pick the body apart, they get fed, and very soon there's just bones left to put in the ostrary. Okay, it says the cylindrical object found near the Dead Sea, he believes, is a ceremonial mix- miniature of such excarnation sites. He cites evidence, including a mural showing vultures and headless human corpus, corpses, that excarnation was practiced several millennia earlier in southern Turkey, where the local Chalcolithic residents are thought to have originated. Arab's theory is, is the first such claim that excarnation was practiced in the Holy Land in that era. Uh, another archaeologist uh, of Hebrew University had led digs for the site. He said that his theory was based only on very distant parallels rather than hard evidence, but it couldn't be ruled out. Uh, and uh, he says that uh, these excavations have yielded almost no material remains of the kind that are common at most archaeological sites. Uh, it's significant, however, as it confirms that the site was never lived in and thus was not a defensive position or a residential quarter, but most likely a ritual center of some kind. Possibly, he said, one indeed linked to a cult of the dead. If Arau's theory is correct, the biblical narrative written millennia later might offer hints that sky burial remained in the memory of the local population. No longer practiced, it was instead considered an appalling fate wished on one's worst enemies. In one example in the book of Samuel, uh, David says that the Philistine warrior Goliath, who another giant like Og, that he would soon cut off his head, and he said, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Now, um, what I found interesting at the end there, when he's talking about the Red Sea, mm-hmm. or Dead Sea, excuse me, Dead Sea, uh, with the picture of the birds hanging over there, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly the northeast corner, I believe, is where Gog's burial place is supposed to be. It is interesting. Right on that corner of the Valley of the Passengers. And that's how... That's what happens to his bones. The birds come and God sends them for a feast where they feast on his it's on the pretty, bones of the fallen. It's within like a half mile of the of the, the line, you know, where they, the demarcation, the 67 demarcation line there. You, you, you're talking about Gilgal Raphaim? Yeah. It's really yeah. close. I looked it up on Google Maps. You can find it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, is there any other hint you know in Scripture? Where a prophet or somebody back in the Old Testament made an allusion to that, because that if they're right on their dating, if they are close to it, that thing was long there. I mean, Joshua and the other guys were like sort of stepping around it mm-hmm. when they were going through the land. Well, one of the thi- I mean, obviously one of the things that they were all kind of freaked out by was the north. You know, Gog was there, and there were other things there, yeah. and they went everything that was everything's in the north is scary. Yeah. Um, That's where invasion always came was from the north, right? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Now, um, yeah. of course, the Rephaim—they're bad dudes. Were they giants or were they ghosts or were they both? 
They were sort of uh, almost sound like the zombies of the ancient yeah, world. They were the boogeymen. Yeah. I don't know. What's your take on the Rephaim? I would have to say uh, semi-divine beings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Related. Not like God, but certainly not more than mortal is what you're yes. saying. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but it's hard to say. I mean, you know, there's a lot of other people who who s- seem to show pretty pretty convincingly that. Um, that they were really that that they were just the dead. Yeah. That's it. And yeah. it could be one of those things where the word has some semantic yeah. uh you know, semantic play yeah. to it. Wide semantic field. Well, another word some people say that this is another word for the same people as the Raphaim called the Emim that was used, I believe, by the Moabites. Mm-hmm. But that or or it was a related people. I think that meant the frightening ones. So even the other, not not just the Israelites, but the other ones around, you know, Moab, Ammonites, those kind of guys, mm-hmm. they were all afraid of those people. And so you would be shocked to find out who was the first person to give me some indication of that weirdness was going on in the Holy Land. It was Robert Hyde, actually. Uh, I'm not surprised. Way in the very early days of just starting Future Quake. in the least. Where he said, you know, I can remember to this day, I mean, at his house, he told me, he says, you know, he says there was some real spiritual warfare going on there of which we know very very little about about strange beings that had attributes that we know very little about Mm -hmm. and i think the Mm -hmm. more we've studied it over the last seven years the more we can say that that's likely but uh that's it for it you gotta that was our tribute to weirdness for the week yeah it's a good tribute thanks you can you like i like i said you can see here right on google maps it's just below uh it's just below yonatan uh There and uh, west of the ceasefire, 1974 ceasefire line, which would probably be a great place to go right now. I'm sure it's a very safe place, and uh, mm-hmm. you know maybe plan something there over the next couple of months. Yeah, just go get your plane tickets I'm and cool get there. With it. And, you know, I'm cool with it. We could have a good Isaiah 17 conference there. Huh. We could actually, like you know, actually because you at Gilgal Rephaim. I don't know if you had a pair of binoculars. I wonder if you could actually see Damascus from there. I'll bet you could. I bet you could. It's a high place. I, Hold on. I, let me let me tell you I how mean, far it is. Probably like 10 miles yeah. to Damascus, something like that. Well, I don't know if it's quite that. I, it's somewhere in that neck of the woods. Because where I was at the time, I think, was only 12 miles away. And I was in Israel. I mean, our, our, our distances are so, you know, we think about something totally different here than what it was in, in reality back then. But... Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, our Futurians are good on keeping up with things, and I'm sure they're watching the news that Isaiah 17 is looking more and more likely every day. The uh, judgment against Damascus. It's looking ugly. It's true. Yeah. It's real close. I don't know if it's yeah. 10 miles close, but it's yeah. close. Well, looking ugly. Uh, Tom, do you have any stories? Speaking of ugly, let's talk. Let me. Let's hear from me. Catholic Church faces hardcore porn shame. While you do that, I'm going to enjoy me an absinthe uh, candy. Sweet. Okay. You want one? Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, okay. Here. I'll partake. There's an absinthe. Uh, hopefully, it's just flavoring, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You, haven't, you haven't tested absinthe. it out on the on the the mutt yet? No. No. I did see a big dragon that came in here earlier, but I fought him off. Okay. Oh, no. so you tried it about yourself? Yeah. Okay. Great. Catholic Church faces hardcore porn shame. And by the way, thanks to Future uh Futurian Bob. I think it was who was it? Who Yeah, I think it was Futurian Bob. Yeah. yeah. Gave us these little mints. Yeah. 
If I got the wrong person, please yeah. forgive me. But yeah. Germany's biggest Catholic-owned publishing house has been rocked by disclosures that it has been selling thousands of pornographic novels with titles such as I will omit those with the big fullest with the full assent of the country's leading bishops with they're they're aware of it oh they're aware yeah for like decades it wasn't going on underneath I mean, it wasn't like some low. like some miscreant behind the scenes like you know Not turning the cranks okay. in the middle of the night all right you know the revelations made in the publishing industry newsletter book report con- concern Weltbild a company with an annual NZ uh, $3 billion of turnover and 6,400 employees. Mm-hmm. It is Germany's largest bookseller after Amazon and wholly owned by the Catholic Church. Book report revealed that Weltbilt's massive assortment of titles available to customers online included, includes some 25 erotic books with unmistakably lewd titles, including, I will just... Leave those there. Okay. The the, <laughs> the publisher's website also uh, also pictures the titles "Levitious Dust Jackets" that feature color photographs of scantily clad women in high heels and erotic underwear. Hmm. Yesterday, Carol Hoff, Veltbild's managing director, was quoted as saying that the revelations had provoked a very intense and critical dialogue within the company. I'll bet. Well, you know, this has just been corruption week. Here we had the Penn State thing with the pedophile activity mm-hmm. going on there. You know, with the knowledge of evidently the whole administration there, you've got the whole Herman Cain thing, he said, she said, going yep. on. You've got Berlusconi, uh, who's, you know. Anyway, it's, uh, this is just, I don't know if this is like the age of discovery of this stuff, but I just realized... Yeah, all this stuff is going on under our nose perpetually. I mean, it's not, and we new. get a glimpse. We just get a glimpse with stories like this. Well, let's 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 rewind to let's rewind back a couple hundred years. The German, the German monarchs were eating people. Yeah, right under the nose of you know, and that's that's as late as 1880 was the last recorded documented one. Where but, they, yeah, that they was something somebody. that that they they thought. Royalty thought genetically that was better, wasn't it? Yeah, they would do that. They were consuming the person's like spirit or something. Yeah, yeah, something life force. But but I I mean like um, quote enlightened Western royalty. Not not we're not talking about Visigoths. No, we're talking no, about like, like the royalty line that we English have today. English and the you know that, yeah. that that line that runs through the Germans and the Danes and the English. They're all sort of one big line. They were all into eating people. I remember reading that and just being aghast. Yeah, but that explains a lot of royal bloodlines. Why they well that and interbreed interbreeding yeah. that they do. I really hate your mother-in-law. Well, just eat the vegetables. Yeah. So when they would say, "Hey, we'd like to have you over for dinner," they've been it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Continue story. Sorry. Just just to make sure. Will this apple fit in your mouth? <laughs> yeah. Here, just get on the spit. Yeah. Yesterday, Carol Hoff, Veltfold's managing director, was quoted as saying that the revelations had provoked a very intense and critical dialogue within the company. I'll bet. He said discussions were underway about possibly limiting the assortment of titles that would be available in the future. Catholic bishops responded with a statement claiming that a system, a filtering system failure at the publishing house had allowed the books to stray onto the market hmm. instead of keeping them at home for themselves. I don't know what that means. Hmm. 
we will put a stop to the distribution of possibly pornographic content in the future. No, there's not po- no possibly about it. Uh, but Bernard uh, Mueller, editor of the Catholic magazine PUR, dismissed the cleric's reaction as grossly hypocritical. He alleged that the pornography scandal at Veltbilt had been going on for at least a decade with the church's full knowledge. Uh, Ms. Mueller, Mr. Mueller said that in 2008, a group of concerned Catholics had sent bishops a 70-page document containing irrefutable evidence that Veltbilt's publishing uh, published books that promoted pornography, Satanism, and magic. They demanded that the mm-hmm. publisher withdraw the titles, but their protests appeared to have been completely ignored. Writing in the Develop newspaper, Mr. Mueller says most of the bishops refused to respond to the charges. The sudden proclaimed astonishment of many church leaders that pornographic material is being distributed by their publishing house is play-acting. Bad play-acting, Mr. Mueller says. Believers have been complaining to their bishops about this for years. The Catholic Church bought Velt Bilt more than 30 years ago. The publisher has gradually transformed itself into one of Germany's largest media companies with the help of millions of Catholic Church tax levied mm-hmm. on believers. That's right, because they have, they they take it out of your paycheck. Yeah, right. the country does yeah. it, wherever they... Yeah. yeah. To increase its profits, in 1998, the company merged with five other publishing houses that market pornographic titles. Um, one of them is Dromer Nauer, which is 50% church-owned. Another is Blue Panther Books, which was excluded from the list of participating publishers at this year's Frankfurt Book Fair, allegedly because of the pornographic content of its titles. It emerged yesterday that in an attempt to clear itself of potential embarrassment over the sale of the porn, the Catholic Church tried to sell Velt Built in 2009, but the bishops apparently abandoned the idea after they failed to get the price they were asking. Mm-hmm. Well, before us Protestants gloat at the, at the Catholics at doing this unspeakable and totally unjustifiable corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw this week that Harper Collins bought out at least a controlling interest in Thomas the, Nelson. Thomas Nelson. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'll publish anything. Those people will publish whatever. Mm-hmm. Then we've got, um, I think, Zondervan, who's owned by Rupert Murdoch, who publishes pornographic stuff elsewhere, who also does Fox News mm-hmm. and just porn- pornography. So we don't even have independent, major, major Christian book publishers here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, the big guys that are going to really impact the society in a large way. We don't even have them that are independently run by Christians that have kingdom goals. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States. I mean, and, you know, we have covered and alluded to things about the other Christian media and... uh the way they're compromised in what they have. And uh, I tell you, it makes me very sympathetic to people who just believe in attending your local, small, independent church mm-hmm. and uh, staying clear of all this kind of stuff because the corruption is definitely within the halls of the church. And, yeah. how you know, if the, if, if the word comes, uh, something, you know, from God that needs to get out to the church at large in America... 
it, it can't go through those, those normal channels because those normal channels are actually stand opposed to those kind of things. I mean, you know, they're not making corporate decisions based upon hearing from the Spirit of God. No. Like, you know what? God is telling us the American church really needs, this is going to be difficult, it may not be lucrative, but, but God really wants the American church to sort of go in this direction. That is not a factor when they decide what's going to be published at all. No, it's... I know this Buffy sounds very naive. Meet before the right before the rapture. But but we really need to you like know a Daniel Steele novel with a rapture in it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um. So anyway, that's just something that you know. Like I said, we we picture this and it sounds ridiculous until you realize that um, we're in the same boat here. Mm-hmm. And support your independent Christian media publishing. Uh, radio, uh, TV, whatever it is, that is actually still under the control of people who at least as best as they can trying to seek the Lord's will. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a story here that's sort of a summary story because there is a ton of stuff going on in Israel. And um, this is one that just summarizes some events that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out it's from InfoWars. So they're going to have a little bit of a perspective on it. Um it says Israel could be forced to go it alone on Iran attack. Um, and furthermore, it says that Sarkozy calls Netanyahu a liar, and the Obama administration cools on sanctions. I guess you heard about that about the open mic. Yeah. Uh, that, Sarkozy that said. The, Sarkozy said, I really hate that guy. And, yeah. And Obama says, You hate him. I have to deal with him every day. Right. <laughs> Something like right. that. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Uh, it says del- uh, developments over the last 24 hours suggest that Israel could be forced to go it alone in launching a military assault on Iran's nuclear facilities, with the United States and NATO backing away from becoming involved in a conflict that would spark economic and geopolitical turmoil. During a private conversation with Barack Obama at last week's G20 meeting, French pre- President Nicolas Sarkozy was overhead, overheard by a journalist to say, I cannot bear Netanyahu. He's a liar. Obama responded by remarking, You're fed up with him, but I have to deal with him every day. The comments were caught after a microphone was accidentally left on following the conclusion of the conference. A Reuters reporter was among the journalists present and can confirm the veracity of the comments, which were relayed by a French Internet outlet on Tuesday, reports Haaretz, which is a major um, Israeli newspaper. Now, um, I read another story that, that sort of focused on this more. The other thing that happened in that G20 summit mm-hmm. is that all of the reporters that are there sign some kind of document that if, quote, embarrassing comments are made by the world leaders there, that they will not print them. What? Yeah, yeah. They sign a release there saying if there's something that they call embarrassing comments or something they do not want out, they sign a release saying they will not report it. From the G20. Okay. So if they want access, you have to sign it. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. That That's as equally disturbing, is that we don't have a media who's doing their job for their respective societies um, by be- basically being controlled and, and being a lackey for these people. Um, it says the exchange highlights a deepening gulf between the Western powers and Israel over plans to attack Iran with French Foreign Minister Alain Juppe making it clear today that France does not support a military campaign. If the IAEA report due out this week indicates Iran is building atomic weapons capabilities, 
then France would firmly back further UN sanctions, he said. But it would do all it can to stop military action, reports the Jerusalem Post. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Obama administration has reportedly backed away from plans to impose new economic sanctions on Iran, fearing, quote, severe penalties against Iran's central bank and its fuel exports would exacerbate the turmoil on international financial markets, reports Debkafile. So there would be too much economic backlash against a bank and borrow. With Russia and China also expressing their opposition to an attack, it seems likelier that Israel will exploit a contrived pretext to prove that Iran represents an imminent threat to its security, an event that will carry far more shock value than the text of an IAEA report. Well, given what we studied of history, that sounds like the most likely mm-hmm. scenario that would occur. This whole incident with that uh, used car salesman and drug dealer in Texas that they tried to make out to be an Iranian agent, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was one they tried to get to stick to justify war. And so they're thinking they're going to oh, do yeah, something that's right. bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. going to try something bigger here. It's, it's funny, not a, nobody bought that one. Well, you know, some people are still pretty gullible. Usually church folk are the most gullible. But, no, uh, well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, they, they, cause, you know, they, they want to see a good war. They want to see blood in the streets. Uh, it says, um, um, should Israel, uh, wish to stage a Gulf of Tonkin style provocation? And for those of you new listeners, that Gulf of Tonkin was the thing that justified Vietnam War that the NSA admitted a few years ago never happened, where our own government and military lied to the American public to create 50-something thousand American men losing their lives in mm-hmm. Vietnam over a lie told to the public. Um, it says it will call on Mossad agents to pose as terrorists and carry out attacks that will be blamed on Iran, similar to how Palestinian militants were offered cash and weapons by Israel to pose in an al-Qaeda cell and carry out bombings in 2002. Did you, did you know that? No. That Israel uh, offered cash and weapons to Palestinians to to pose as an al-Qaeda cell. To basically sell to the West that al-Qaeda had infiltrated, like the West Bank. Wow. And uh, it says even if Israel is forced to launch an attack on Iranian nuclear facilities without the support of the U.S. and other NATO powers, don't expect them to not get involved at some point. The inevitable reprisal attacks that Iran will launch through its proxies, like Hezbollah, will be seized upon by the establishment media, uh, who say how dare they defend themselves, incited as a pretext for U.S. involvement to maintain security in the region. And America will find itself embroiled in yet another conflict. Which, that's what the other Western powers are hesitant, because we've had Libya, we're involved in Yemen, Mm -hmm. of course, Afghanistan and Iraq, um... We are the war country. We I think I think Hitler Blitz, Hitler at Blitzkrieg would be uh, envious of the speed at which boom, we've gone through countries. Boom. Yeah. Um, anyway, hey, if if you got two seconds, I, I went and looked up that story. There was a link to the story about uh, Israel paying Al Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, I'll, please. I'll put a link on that. I'm not going to read all of it. It's it's a page long, but um, this was back from 8 December 2002 on BBC. It says uh, Israel insists al-Qaeda is operating in Gaza. It says officials from the Palestinian Authority have accused the Israeli spy agency Mossad of setting up a fake al-Qaeda terrorist cell in Gaza. 
Palestine, this is Yasser Arafat back then, later Yasser Arafat said that Israel has set up a mock cell in order to justify attacks in Palestinian era. And, of course, the Israeli spokesman said it was sheer nonsense. Um, it says um, Israel has named al-Qaeda the key suspect in the suicide bombing at a hotel in Mombasa, Kenya mm-hmm. that killed 16 people and a, a missile attack. Um, it says uh, Colonel Rashid Abu Shabak, the Palestinian head of preventive security, yeah, said eight Palestinians had been approached from outside Gaza and had been asked by Israeli agents to work for al-Qaeda with offers of money and weapons. Colonel Abu Shabak said that the first approaches were made March of this year and that all communications had been traced back to Israeli intelligence. Um, he cited the case of one Palestinian militant who had been approached and been supplied with guns and who was killed on his way to collect a second consignment of weapons. Hmm. Um, Oops. Yeah. Um, he says, now we can't say that there will never be al-Qaeda here, but at least not for now, he said. Um it says uh, on Friday, this is in 2002, okay, American media reported al-Qaeda had set up a branch to help Palestinian militant groups fight Israel, according to the uh, website officials believed is linked to the organization. Uh, the new group called for an end to inter-Palestinian feuding and to launch suicide attacks against Israeli and American targets in the Middle East. You know, it's fun to read a story like this in hindsight. This is nine years ago. In these supposed attacks that they, the self-cata group was doing, as far as I know, they really didn't happen. Yeah, they were bogus. Yeah. Yeah, so um, maybe we should check. What was there? It was at Inspire. Was that the name of the Al-Qaeda magazine? Yeah. I think we mentioned. Maybe they would have some talk about this in there. But um, people might say, well, how could you believe a Palestinian authority guy saying this happened? Well, there is a precedent uh, in the Levant affair or Operation Susanna, Israel admits that they went to Egypt dressed as Egyptians and did terrorist attacks on British and American uh, installations and was blaming it on the Egyptians so that they wouldn't leave for their mm-hmm. protective thing. And But they got caught. And some of them took their own life. Some of them went to jail. Um it took down the prime minister, uh, Levon, of Israel. Shimon Perez was part of it, but somehow he was able to get out from being thrown out, unlike the other guys. And they recently celebrated it a year or so ago, uh, their great thing. So there's mm. precedent for them doing that kind of activity. Mm. So you got uh, got something for us? Okay, here's one. Um, you heard of BICOM? Who? Bicom, B I C O M. Yeah, B I C O M. Oh, that's Bingo was his name. Oh, no. Bicom is is one of many um, kind of behind the scenes media groups. It stands for British and Israeli Communications, hmm. and the whole idea is to is to to influence news media to 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 change and, and sort of re-propaganda stories, get them to yeah. change their byline, get them to change the way that they do things. And uh, this is obviously a pro-Israeli group, but there are a lot of them out there. And I read it yeah. I read it mainly to just, you know, to just see how sort of bald-faced they are. Mm-hmm. This was an email that was sent to reporters accidentally, which was meant to be like an internal thing. Oh, okay. Oops. So, 
Yeah, the the classic, send it to the wrong address, commit yeah. Harry Carey. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's from Lorna Fitzsimmons, and it's too is deleted. And the subject is, BICOM's rapid response to events over the weekend and continuing work on this on September and the UN. Dear deleted, please find the correct analysis attached. I thought you would be interested to hear of BICOM's response to events over the weekend in Egypt as well as ongoing issues in the region. Events over the weekend. Over the weekend, BICOM's rapid response to the unfolding events in Egypt included distributing our analysis on Egyptian-Israeli relations to key UK media contacts, generated extremely generated extremely valuable responses. Attached here is the link to today's analysis on the subject. BICOM's analysis. Um, Israel-Turkey relations after the Palmer report. And it's got links to the BICOM thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which details the events that took place, their aftermath, and associated implications. In particular, the briefing examines the explanations for hostilities between Israel and Egypt and the responses to the offense in Israel, Egypt, and internationally. Throughout the weekend, BICOM staff were in contact with a whole host of BBC and Sky News desks and journalists, ensuring that the most objectively favorable line was taken and offering talking heads relevant to the stories unfolding. Um, (laughs) uh, BICOM senior analyst Dr. Noam Leshem briefed the BBC World News editorial board on Saturday afternoon regarding the fallout from the Israeli-Egyptian embassy siege. Yeah. After contact with the Biocom media team, Sky News changed their narrative in explaining the prior events in the region which led up to this weekend, eventually acknowledging that both Egyptians and Israelis were killed in Sinai a fortnight ago. This week. BICOM has one of BBC News' key anchors on a bespoke, uh, bespoke delegation. I don't know what that is exactly. Mm-hmm. When planning her very first trip to the region, Sophie Long got in touch with BICOM to see if, she, if we could help her out with meeting in, the region, meeting in the region. Sophie is now spending three days of her trip with BICOM Israel, taking a tour around the old city, meeting Mark Regev, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Alex Jakobsen, as well as visiting Ramallah and Sadar. Yeah, Sadar. Yeah. My second article for the Huffington Post entitled How to Make the Next 9 11 Less Likely, Myth Busting, and Truth Telling will be published today. It is a timely response synthesizing the messages which can be taken from 9 11 with the current unnerving events unfolding between Egypt and Israel. The American version of the Huffington Post has 1.2 million readers in the UK and 38 million in the US. September in the UN, I briefed Jonathan Ford, the Financial Times leader, uh, uh, leader writer for his upcoming leading article in tomorrow's newspaper. BICOM had regular contact with the editor-at-large of Prospect magazine, Dave Goodhart, helping to inform him about the forthcoming UN vote on Palestinian statehood. The uniquely tailored BICOM spotlight has the most up-to-date news as well as BICOM analysis and podcasts 
There you Sorry. go, boring yourself again. Palace, uh, and podcasts on the Palestinian drive to UN. I hope you will find this of interest yours, Lorna. Hmm. There you have it. Come. So make sure that people understand this. This is a group that intends to influence how the news is reported. Yes, Behind the scene that the public is not aware of. And their particular representation is for the nation of Israel to uh-huh. make sure that it, yeah, that what the public in, is aware of and how they understand will be sympathetic to the yeah. Israeli position. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I happened to come across another story that said almost the exact same thing, mm-hmm. but worked, it was a different group that worked through a different process. Uh, but it did, you know, work through Sky News and other ones like that that got them briefed and on board with, uh, what was done. Um, Listeners, if you do not f- familiar with this term, look up Hasbara, H-A-S-B-A-R-A. And uh, now Israel is not alone to do it. The CIA has people in foreign bureaus around the world mm-hmm. that control and manipulate the information they get, and also us. Sure, they through they, Operation they, Mockingbird. They so have a whole. They, they have, have an involvement. Whole, they have a whole makeup just to follow Twitter worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is actually my next story. Which in, which has a total effect on how we understand what's going on in the world. But uh, in Israel, it's a very unique thing. It's almost like a religious thing. It's like a spiritual part of being Israeli. Mm-hmm. And Hezbera is the term they use, where you have an obligation to basically sort of sell the Israeli position wherever you are in the world and what yeah. you do. And I didn't even know about that after all we'd studied all the years until... Sometime in this past year, mm-hmm. that that was uh, uh, something that they were called to do, and it was a understood situation. So, our information is controlled that you get through the mainstream. So, uh, if you really want, you know, your best source of information, consult your missionaries. Your missionaries aren't going to be perfect; they're going to be influenced by locals and stuff, but at least they don't have anything to sell, and uh, hopefully, they're not paid off. So. If you want to know what's going on, find out through the church you go to, who is a missionary in that area, and uh, contact them. You know, we have email now. You can find out what's really mm-hmm. going on. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give the people who like weirdness, I'm giving them a, a horn of plenty this week, because hmm. rather than just conspiracy stuff, I'm giving them some good stuff here. And and Sister Deborah, one of our Futurians, has been making me up to date on this story. She has kept me appraised of the um, of the crystal skulls that are making their way across America right now, and the Mayan elders who they've got a big event this Friday on 11/11, which will be the day the show uh, comes online. Uh, you know, getting ready for 2012 and mm-hmm. trying to stop cataclysm, and they're doing a lot for that. Well, there's something else going on in in Egypt. Uh, they're trying to stop it now. But it's it's really, really bizarre. It says, uh, um, let's see, and this is comes out of Aram.org, and I believe that is an Egyptian mainland newspaper. It says, meditation ceremony to save planet Earth at the pyramids canceled. Uh, preparations for a meditation ceremony at the footsteps of the Great Pyramid on 11 November to save the Earth created a brouhaha among Egyptologists. Uh, on Friday, November 11th, a Polish foundation supporting archaeological research, Dar Swiatuida, will group people from all over the globe at the footsteps of the Great Pyramid of Giza for a meditation ceremony of love 
to strengthen the power of the pyramid in that special day to save the earth from cosmic threats. Great. According to the president uh, of it, the pyramid's energy would be strengthened and through the installation of two interpenetrated pyramid-shaped crystals, uh, which they call a Merkaba, which is shaped like the Star of David. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, produced in India out of mountain crystal, inside the granite sarcophagus found in the king's burial chamber inside the pyramid. The special day of 11-11-2011, he said, is a unique opportunity for people from all over the world to join in meditation in order to send the energy of love towards Egypt, towards the Great Pyramid, and towards Earth. This will be a global meditation to help Mother Earth, to help in protecting the Earth and its people against further escalation of violence and cataclysms, as well as spiritual awakening. Uh, okay. According to their event website called The Chops Project, on November 11, there would be two ceremonies in the Giza plat- Plateau uh, from 11 a.m. to midnight. The morning ceremony would be inside the King's Chamber, the Great Pyramid, where a man and a woman, described as human angels, will place the crystal pyramid in the sarcophagus on two golden bars supported by four granite cubes. The golden bars are inscribed with a verse saying, Man doesn't live by bread alone. Human angels, continues Wojciechowicz, will then meditate in the chamber for 75 minutes to energize the crystal pyramids. At the evening ceremony at 11 p.m., he says on the website, All invitees to the event will meditate in circles hand-in-hand around the Great Pyramid in order to send the energy of love directly to the pyramid-shaped crystals inside the sarcophagus, which in turn will strengthen the energy of the pyramid and be connected to pyramids all over the globe to activate the energy points or chakras. This will create a protective Great. shield around the earth to protect us. Yeah. I don't know if we could sort of come up with our version got of something this like all, that. They've clearly got this all worked out about this. Well, it'll stop unwanted cosmic events such as sunspot activity, comets, and Planet X that could cause problems. Um, and it says the idea of the ceremony goes back to 2006 when the Dar Swatawida sponsored an archaeological survey carried out by Egyptian's National Institute for Astronomy and Geophysics Research at the Giza Plateau, where a collection of chambers were found beneath the whole plateau. I don't know if you remember hearing about that. Uh, Wojciechowicz pointed out that the excavation in the area was rejected by the Supreme Council of Antiquities at the time, which led the foundation to sponsor other excavation work in 2008. Um, Now, let me just skip to some some weird stuff on here, okay? Enough of the (laughs) the normal mainstream stuff. Yeah, yeah, how dare. Um... Uh, and it says uh, they believe the Great Pyramid was built to save the Earth by much more advanced civilization and not by the ancients. Um, it says some Egyptologists see that it is a childish game that insults a distinguished symbol of Egyptian civilization, while others feel it is an expression of Jewish Masonic belief that they are the pyramids' builders and not the ancient Egyptians despite the fact that during the 90s, Hawass and his team stumbled upon the Pyramid Builders Cemetery at the Giza Plateau. Um, and so they're trying to stop it. He said, as a member of the SCA staff who, re- who requested anonymity, told Aram Online that he knew that among the meditators are 1,200 Jewish who want to put a symbol of the Star of David on top of the Great Pyramid in order to confirm that they are the real builders and not the ancient Egyptians. I don't think the Egyptians would have any problem with that, having Israelis come and 
take their symbol of their country. I don't see that causing a spat. It's sort of like that uh, Jericho missile. They just fired the ICBM uh-huh. that could reach Iran. Yeah. And they were sort of wondering why Iran was upset. Why were they right? In a it spat. was a joint. That was a joint thing with um, Israel and I can't remember the other country. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, he said uh, this FCA Secretary General Abdul Halim uh, Nuridin said that this he was against the event even if it entailed placing a star David on the pyramid. Uh, if it did. He said Jews have tried to do this since 1931 when members of the Masonic movement considered themselves the pyramid builders. Hmm. Uh, he says in the release, um, Amin asserted the event was not organized by a Jewish Masonic organization, but a Polish organization. However, I've seen they do have like a Makaba or Star David symbol. That's what they were putting in there. So even they're a Polish organization. Because hmm. um, that has New Age meaning too it's like as above so below hmm. it's the same shape uh it's it's sort of inverted pyramids itself um so weird i don't know what i can verify yeah, man. but i don't know everybody's just hit the weird button again here in the last few weeks and extreme war and other stuff Boop. um we've got some news st- uh, we've got some uh, emails to finish up you want to do one quick story you got something real quick Oh, yeah. Let me get over here to the stories. Uh, I mentioned it before, which is why. We'll go over it real quick. AP exclusive CIA following Twitter and Facebook. Uh, In an anonymous industrial park in Virginia, McLean, Virginia to be exact. Yeah. In an unassuming brick building, the CIA is following tweets up to 5 million a day. At the agency's open source center... A team known affectionately as the Vengeful Librarians <laughs> also pours over Facebook, newspapers, TV news channels, and local radio stations, internet chat rooms, anything overseas that can access and contribute to open, openly. From Arabic to Mandarin Chinese, from an angry tweet to a thoughtful blog, the, uh, analysts gather the information often in native tongue. They cross-reference it with the local newspaper or a clandestinely intercepted phone conversation. From there, they build a picture sought by the highest levels at at the White House, giving a real-time peek, for example, at the mood of a region after the Navy SEAL raid that killed Osama bin Laden, or perhaps a prediction of which Mideast nation seems ripe for revolt. Mm -hmm. Yes, they saw the uprising in Egypt coming. They just didn't know exactly when revolution might hit. Well, the fact that all of these revolutionaries were training with the CIA two and three years in advance of the revolution, yeah. kind of a big tip. Sort of helps. Yeah. yeah, you don't you don't really need the, the vengeful librarians for yeah. that one. Yeah, not not a whole lot comes as a surprise to the CIA. Yeah. The center already had predicted that social media in places like Egypt be, could, could become a game changer and a threat to the regime, he said in a recent interview with the Associated Press at the center. CIA officials said that said it was the first such time by a reporter the agency has ever granted. Hmm. While most based uh, most are based in Virginia, that is the analysts. The analysts are also scattered throughout U.S. embassies worldwide to get a step closer to the pulse of the subjects. Those with master's degrees in library science and multiple languages. Uh, especially those who grew up speaking another language, make a powerful open source officer. Hmm. Um, 
And then it goes kind of on and on like that. Mm. So, so what do you make of all that? I mean, you know, long has been the allegation that Facebook and Twitter were designed for the CIA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we know now Google has had a long association with intelligence, right? Yes. The very long, very deep. In fact, I've read some things that actually they were DARPA had helped them early in their beginning. I've heard stuff like that. I haven't seen anything conclusive. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's just sadness. So, when we use some of this stuff, we're our own worst enemies. Yeah. I'll tell you what's weird, man, is I keep getting these phone calls from unknown the last week or so. Yeah. It, I, I call, it calls and it doesn't do anything, and I say hello, and then it beeps and hangs up. Mm. It's like, um, okay. Maybe they're trying to extort you out all your money. Yep. It could be. You know? They target the ultra wealthy, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, would you like to have some uh, close out here with some listener email, please? Okay, here's some. This is called listener email Word. from Futurians. Um, this is from uh, Brother Kurt. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Brother Kurt says um, he says a number of things. I just took a little section out of here. He says. Uh, I really believe evangelism amongst Muslims can be done simply by just being good friends and sharing as friends would. Or, you know, at least that's the start of it. Mm-hmm. He says, I may have told uh, you about the two young Muslim men from Senegal we invited into our home in Singapore. A week after they arrived, they received Christ and were baptized. That didn't take long. It took a whole week to break down those yeah. Muslims. And I, hopefully they didn't offer to kill them once, you know, the Muslims. At their baptism, they testified that they had been to many Muslim countries, but no one had invited them into their home. Hmm. A simple act of inviting them into their home. I know, it's really easy, really easy, isn't it? But you know, Abraham wouldn't do that to Abimelech because he said, um, I believe there was no fear of God in this place, and I was afraid you were going to kill me. Hmm. Which is the spirit we have now with these people, basically. Sweet. Um he I'm said, glad we got that all worked out for him. Yeah. He said it was our simple act of inviting them into our home and treating them like family that made such an impact on them. By the way, one of them now runs a Christian school back in Senegal. Awesome. I mean, that's pretty cool. Brother that's Kurt, heavy. what impact have you had for the kingdom, Brother Kurt, just with that, you know? Mm-hmm. He says, unfortunately, as you know, the American church doesn't seem to see the importance of the simplicity of reaching out to Muslims. This morning in my weekly men's breakfast, we got into a discussion about Islam and Sharia law, and it saddened me to see how much these men I am close to are captivated by the messages and ideology from Fox News and other sources that Christians are plugged into. Fortunately, I had just listened to your interview with the guy from Voice of the Martyrs, so listening to some of Richard Wormbrand's ideas on the subject did seem to bring some Christian sense to the discussion. Isn't that awesome? That's when I feel a little glimmer of hope for future yeah, quake. If we play, if 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 we have a little factoids that we can help somebody who's really pulling the weight, like Brother Kurt, then we've done something mm-hmm. worthwhile. That's a good one. Okay, here's uh, um, let's see here. Uh. Actually, I have it in my stack. It was at a different time, but I want to go on and read. There's another one sent back on this from Brother Kurt. 
uh, talking about the same thing. He he emailed and it has some more interesting information. He says, uh, "Dear Doctor Future," he says, "Been listening to old Future Quake shows. And the last one I listened to was an interview with the guy from Voice of the Martyrs, talking about Richard Wormbrand's book about Christ loving terrorists. It was very powerful, and I found myself amening several times. Hmm. As I mentioned a few times to you, my my Saudi friend Muhammad and his wife, they live on my mail route, and we became instant friends back in January." when they moved here to become Ph.D. students. Uh, last weekend, I got them, uh, they got back from three months uh, at home uh, in their Arab country. So I went back to visit them Sunday night. Um, uh, he, he has a picture here of the clothes that Muhammad brought back for him. He says, the picture doesn't show the camel level sandals or the sandals from Turkey or the other robe he brought me. He says, I know he spent hundreds of dollars on all of these gifts, including dates and other snack foods. Okay, this is the Muslim man for the Christian. He says, that night we shared a wonderful meal prepared by his wife, starting at 7.30 when they were free to break their daily fast as we are now in Ramadan. I feel very blessed that our friendship, and I'm so glad that I did not give into any fear or apprehension about him because of where he's from. During our talk, he mentioned that he's been reading the Bible this summer. As a literature major, he's read parts of it before, but this summer on his own, he's decided to read it more systematically. Mm. I told him about the Branson Conference, the one we and I spoke at, and specifically your talk there. He, he asked me why you were defending Islam, and I replied, it wasn't so much as that you were defending Islam as you were exposing a hidden agenda that was coming under a supposed Christian banner. Mm. And uh, he goes on to some other things. But, you know, here's a brother who is actually interacting. He's rolling with it, you know. And making fruit. And not being scared by other Christians, but is trying to do something tangible. Mm. And uh, that's what makes Future Quake worthwhile. Just a little bit more here. Some quick ones. This is from uh, Brother Marco. He says, uh, love your shows from Marco in Northern Ireland. Any chance Tom Bionic could add me as a friend on Facebook? Keep up the good work, and God bless you, you guys. Just find me, man. Okay. I've, I've gotten several where people want you to friend them. Well, oh. go to Tom Bionic and hit friend. I think they said <laughs> your friend much. button wasn't working one time. Oh, well, I don't know why yeah, that so is. There's check no, that out. I just looked. There's no new request. I wish right I now. could have him as a friend, but he won't be my friend either. Okay, here's uh, Futurian Josh has some uh, stuff to say. He said... Uh, he says, you guys are great to listen to. I mean, by the way, he has supported our ministry in the past tangibly. Mm-hmm. He says, you guys are great to listen to. I guess one thing in particular that has interested me with your show is that both of you have a great sense of humor, albeit dry, and you mix that with real news and real stories. I spend most of my time listening to various radio shows like yours, Alex Jones, Omega Man, A View from the Bunker, Survive to Thrive. All of these go over the same things, generally. However, your presentation insight is unique. He says, I'm 29, and I work and live in Miami. I've been here for over two years. I was born and raised in Hickory, North Carolina. However, my career has taken me to various parts of the U.S. for the last six years. Like most of your listeners, we, my girlfriend and I, struggle to find a solid church and community to build relationships with. There was just something about South Florida that makes meeting people with the same values and interests difficult. I have only a few prayer requests. One would be for guidance on how to live more for the Lord and to be able to bear fruit for him. My dad is a pastor of a church in North Carolina, 
He has been for 30 plus years, however. He is going through a transition where he just announced he'll be resigning in the middle of October. With that going on to put pressure on his family, so a prayer for guidance for them as, as well, so they will know where the Lord is leading them. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate all you guys do. And uh, last one. This is. This I want. I want to respond to that one guy's email. He was just talked about uh, like wanting how to like live more for the Lord and that sort of thing. Just right now. Yeah, that guy. Okay, we're, we're gonna pray for him. Oh. Okay. Oh, okay, right now we are. Gonna yeah, pray? can I do this last email okay, and sure. we'll just do a prayer. We'll wrap up with a prayer. I was just gonna say you need to get a check out a book by Gregory Colcol called Tactics. Is how to maneuver in conversations. So suddenly everybody you meet becomes a potential okay. witnessing type thing and you okay. can do it without being offensive but it didn't have anything to do with putting a notch on your bible when no. you do it okay. it's kind of the exact opposite all right uh to conclude uh futurian john uh says a uh, good evening to both of you he says i hope uh well with you all he says i've got to say that we are living in a most interesting time here in virginia beach while everyone is preparing for a possible hurricane we were hit with a 5.8 magnitude earthquake uh, although other sources are estimating 5.9 not long after the earthquake hit, my wife told me she was scared, and my daughter asked me, what's going on? Is this the end of the world? As they were expecting an absolute answer from me, I realized my answer was that with whatever is happening in the earth, it's in the Lord's hands. I feel so weak and inadequate right now as a father, husband, and grandfather, especially with what's going on in the world now, but I believe that I'm coming to a place of more intimate trust in my Father in Heaven and the Lord Jesus and really loving those around me not just close family and friends. Hmm. I'm only sharing this because of the encouraging email you read a couple weeks ago about the family that hit rough times and had to move into a ghetto area. That's one that really touched me as well. Um, and are living humbly and loving those around them. The Lord is made strong in my weakness also. This email is also dedicated to Tom Bionic. He has been talking a little bit about the changes going on in his life and I would like him to be encouraged in the Lord also. So, you, you hear him, Brother John? I heard him. Okay. I appreciate your ministry, which continues to bless me in my walk with the Lord and leading a sometimes challenging blended family. God bless. So, Brother John says that's a word for you. Sweet. You want to pray for Brother Josh and for his dad? You want me to? Yeah, why don't you do it? Okay. No, you're feeling uh, under the weather. Yeah, I'm... I'm okay. I've hit the tired wall. Okay, I'm going to say, say a prayer here. Okay. Um, Brother, uh, Heavenly Father, we're praying for uh, Brother Josh tonight and his wife, mm -hmm. Lord, that uh, are looking for a place there in Florida where they can worship you and have mm -hmm. fellowship with uh, other kindred spirits, Lord, that also seek you as well. Lord, I pray you'd answer his request. In uh, he, uh, he he both, both of them, uh, or maybe it was a girlfriend, Lord, but uh, just pray that you'd bless them. And also pray for his dad, uh, who is uh, leaving a, uh, a pastoral position and is looking for a big change in his life. Lord, I pray that you would meet his needs. Um, Lord, each of these emailers has stuff going on in their life, as well as the people we didn't hear from, Lord, all our Futurians. Lord, I pray that, that uh, although this is somewhat general, that you would work in each of their lives, Lord, and that we could hear an email uh, specific ways that this prayer is answered, Lord, that um, they're going to be drawn closer to you, bear more fruit for the kingdom, Lord, and um, just be stronger based upon your blessing to them. And so, Lord, we we pray for prayer for them and 
And again, for Brother Tom here, that you'd heal him and help him in other areas of his life. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, just a quick update to folk. Um, I told you that uh, PayPal had frozen our account because they were all curious that we were a ministry, but yet we weren't a licensed church. Mm-hmm. Even though we make it clear we're not that on the front of our website. And they were really freaked out about what we were. And I thought, you know, they're not the first people that can't figure out what Future Quake's about. I can't. And it was locked out for a long time. And I got so frustrated, I just wanted to really chew them out. And it was another one of these humbling things where I had to back up and just be patient and explain what the Lord was doing with Future Quake. And after I started doing that, uh, there was a change of heart. And they just released the restriction on Future Quake for our donate button. Sweet. So... Uh, I told you all to hold off on that, so doing stuff on our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, feel free to use it. I think everything's in good stead. And the other thing to remember is to tell uh, Merv to come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's the end of the line, buddy. Any last words you got? I'm out like a trout. i got to go to bed. I'm tired. Okay. Sorry I wore you out again. Uh, you know, everybody gets bored listening to me, even if you're in the room here. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the word from Brother Joel and our listeners, our, for our emailers as well as us. And we look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Later. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.